Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mike Springston FFC Podcast, where we coach you in the Word. We're glad to have you from all over the country. We want to welcome in again Oregon and Minnesota and Arizona, New Mexico and Texas, West Virginia, North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, and we want to welcome in Chile as our international uh, entrance this month. We're glad to be studying the Word of God with all of you. Uh, I uh, want to welcome you to contact us at springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministry.com, ffcma.org, or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. Uh, maybe you have a word of encouragement. Maybe you have a question, whatever the case. Maybe God's laying you on our heart, and we would love to be involved with you directly. We want to remind you of our book, I Surrender. Um, in bookstores and on Amazon. We're going to go into session seven today of the uh, series entitled Operating in the God Kind of Faith. We're going to start again from Colossians chapter two and verse three. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get busy. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Open our eyes that we can see in our ears, that we can hear in our heart, that we can understand what the word of God is saying to us and then let us be changed into the image of your dear son. Jesus, please speak, and as you speak and reveal your word to the Holy Spirit, he will reveal it to us, and we will know what to do, what to demonstrate. We will know what we must understand and what we must accomplish. In so doing, we will receive it and release it to your people, and your people will be ministered to. I pray that you'll do this all in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. Session 7, Operating in the God Kind of Faith, Colossians 2.3, For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Our faith now operates on a bigger and better and new level. Because we are in Him and in God, and because of Him, our faith can begin to function in the spiritual world with the same force that Jesus' faith has functioned. We can enter into the strong man's house and plunder his goods. We can speak to the mountain and watch it become a plain. We have the ability to speak and release the Holy Spirit to do creative things. We lay hands on the sick and cast down devils. We're able to face outside attacks and be protected able to settle the actions of the body as it attempts to rebel. And then, of course, we speak with new tongues. How does this all happen? Well, the Lord, because we have entered into the hidden place in Christ and in God, confirms the word with signs following. Because in the eye and mind of the Father and the Son, when you speak, you move, you pray, you say, or you complete any activity, in the name of Jesus, that activity is done in a spiritual nature. And it is as if Jesus himself, your man that you were mixed with in the smoke, is speaking or actually doing the work. Now right here your flesh is beginning to come unglued. Why is that? Because you're seeing where you could possibly use faith but not always in the spiritual realm, but now you could see where the loopholes are for you to use it to serve yourself. Now I want to stop and make this statement before I move forward. 
Faith is directly associated, my friends, with work at the altar. It was through the altar of incense that we were identified to be conjoined with Jesus Christ until we became joint heirs. We became a member of His priesthood. It's from this altar that we were hidden with Christ in God. So our faith must be conscious of the altar's importance and how our faith works in coordination with that altar. We can see things begin to come clearly. Such things as why we have most churches, why in most churches we've eliminated the altars. Why do churches not have an opportunity for ministry at a directed place such as an old-fashioned altar? Well, because we move beyond the need for a place of prayer, a place of repentance, and a place of new beginnings. I told you we would see how we saw the loophole in faith. Well, we've taught a love that does not require any of these. We've instructed concerning grace in such a way that those who believe in that concept do not have a need to use the altar as they have absolutely nothing in their spirit or in their consciousness in a spiritual perspective that needs repairing. So we must, we have moved past prayer We've moved past repentance and we've moved past new beginnings. We've gone forward to restructure faith, if you will. This has been, been a progressive movement in the church that has been ongoing for years. As we restructured worship and we restructured what the sanctuary was to look like, we in turn restructured faith through the elimination of the correct worship and praise and the correct utilization of the altar. What we did, we simply cut out the things that we perceive as non-essential to Christian worship. In so doing, we altered the worship until in our modern churches it is an unrecognizable sanctuary. Prayer is no longer a necessity for the believer. There is no guilt for sin so why do we need an altar? Well, why did Israel make an altar at every place along the way where Jehovah had done the miraculous? Because they wanted to remember what he had done when they saw the altar. They also wanted to teach their children the history of the faithfulness of God. Along with these two sources of worship came appropriate praise and appropriate honor that was bestowed upon the one who was worthy of that praise. He was worthy because he had shown his might and his ability to Israel. The altar was of vital importance, of course, in the modern progressive day church. We don't use an altar any longer because we don't see the need for repentance because we tell people that once they're in grace, they're always in grace. So what good is an altar? in the modern day church. Of course, we now know that when we look into the tabernacle in the outer court, there was a brazen altar. Israel knew that brazen altar well. This was the altar where they laid their hand upon a perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice shed blood for the covering of their sin. They would lay hands on his forehead while they slit the neck of the sacrifice. 
this altar was essential to the process of worship in Israel. Now you might say, worship doesn't occur that way in the modern Christian world. To be sure, you are correct. But worship must have significance, now watch this, in the things that are on the mind and in the plan of God. Now why would I say this? Because Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 18, shows us of a priesthood of Jesus Christ. And it is describing as it is described as being after the order of Melchizedek. The work that he accomplished in the tabernacle that was made without hands is and was an act of worship. Through the act of worship he made those who would follow him in death and in new life to become priests after his own order. We would minister in that tabernacle in the spirit. Today we get none of the effects the acts, or the deeds of that ministry. We are not taught concerning that ministry, and therefore we've eliminated it from the worship arena. What a shame. However, that altar, those two altars, were essential elements of how we are able to process faith and be hid in Christ in God. We must transform our churches back into churches that reflect the tabernacle by reintroducing light and the use of the altar. Sometimes it astounds me how we've gone dark when the place where the, 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 the priesthood dwells is a place that is lit with the lampstand and the walls of gold. We're aware, of course, by what I just said, that the tabernacle where Jesus ministered was full of light. That light represented Jesus. It reflected off of walls that were made of solid gold. So light, my friend, is essential to God. If it is essential to God, it must be essential to us. The brazen altar was the place where the sacrifice was slain. It holds the absolute importance to God. The altar of the cross also was of absolute importance to God as he sent his son there to take upon himself the sin of the world. That sacrifice serves as the entrance into the eternal economy as it provided the blood that would serve to wash away all sins for the one who believed upon the accomplished work of Jesus. Then there was the altar of incense and that also must be extremely important in the mind of God as it was there that the smoke that became a sweet-smelling savor to him was generated. We must see the altar from the perspective of God because their entrance and inclusion both came by the operations that occurred upon that altar. Now, what do these have to do with faith and the appropriate use of faith? Well, there's a place that's been established for the youth of faith to be your entrance into the family of God. It is the mechanism of an altar. Can an altar be made of anything and be used anywhere? Well, of course it could. Can be made of anything and can be used anywhere. Of course, we know that to be so. But in the sanctuary that should be patterned after the tabernacle made without hands. 
the sanctuary, the altar has implications. Those implications are for praise, worship, prayer, and profession. My friends, that's essential to God. That is essential to God. It's not made to be a stairway to the platform where man put their feet upon the altar. It's made to be a place of praise, worship, prayer, and profession where faith that becomes the faith of God can be put into operation. If it were not essential, the holy place, the outer court, neither one of them would have had an altar. But in the mind of God, it is essential. It is our faith to be utilized with great effectiveness. If our faith is to be utilized with great effectiveness, then we must determine what are the essential parts of faith to God. Well, we know both altars were essential. We know the smoke was essential. We know the priesthood was essential. We know mixing with him was essential. And we know being hidden in Christ in God is all essential to God. Our worship and all the things that come that must be completed at an altar are essential to the God of the universe. I heard a prominent preacher from this era say, not too very long ago, that our faith world, and Pentecostalism in particular, has been taken over by the idea of the prosperity gospel. Although I do not agree with that as a blanket statement, I do agree that it has become a deep-seated and extremely misguided teaching in the Pentecostal church, just as I think that the cross as a standalone object of worship is also a misguided and misinstructed teaching in our church. This man also stated that the church has regulated faith to be the byproducts of God. Obviously, based on this study, I concur with this comment, as it has been the theme of this teaching, that faith is not a byproduct, a benefit of God. We seek things from God. We seek the benefits of God, but we spend far less time doing what the object of this teaching is, and that is actually seeking God. This, in my opinion, is the tragedy of our day. It is also the reason for all of the upheaval and the release of evil that we see in our uh, streets and in our families and in our children. We lost our way with regards to faith. We lost our way to be able to live and be in the unity of faith that would bring us into the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. The consequences and repercussions of the misguided application of faith has been devastating to the communities in which we live. It's been devastating, moreover, to the church. Our families and have diminished to the point of elimination, and that elimination being the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How in the world could this happen? If the message of faith had been on point, 
How could the application of faith caused and brought about such devastating dominoes to fall upon the church world? Well, my friend, the answer is clear. We've used faith inappropriately. We placed our faith on the things and not on Him. The church has never been the same. The head of the church is now seen in most churches as simply not responding as He once did. The concept that He's changed the way He does it, those times have passed. He's not doing those things anymore. Those things are not scriptural. And of course that makes them not biblical because they are not congruent with the total word of God. The reason that his availability or his responsibility to us has nothing to do with his desire to respond. It has to do with the fact that the church is operating in the things, the byproducts, and not seeking Him. The church has taken the precepts that lead to His continuous interaction and diminished them to byproducts, to mere things. What are those things of which we speak? We've diminished Him as one who constantly operates. We brought him into just the blessing. He blesses us. He blesses us. He fills our pockets. He heals us. He delivers us. He gives to us. He provides for us, and so on. What do we see here? You see a whole lot of us, and we see the concept of what is the benefit of God to us. Now, someone would say, is there supposed to be no benefits to us? Of course there are going to be benefits to us. But the benefits to us are going to be the byproducts that are released because we are seeking and serving Him. Because we are worshiping and honoring and praising Him. We pray and seek Him. Right there is the key. We produce these elements as the staple of our love relationship to Him. We do so looking for absolutely nothing in return. We love Him because, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, He loved us and gave Himself for us. This is the reason we bow, worship, praise, and honor. What He chooses to do in return for that praise, worship, and honor, and bowing, well, that's simply the Father operating in response to our gifts of honor. If He gives absolutely nothing, He has already given everything. We must transfer our soul into this arena We love Him. We serve Him. His return to us has already been provided. If we would understand this, we would seek God in a way that would be appropriate based upon how we came to know Him in the first place. We have the benefit of being His children because of the price that He paid for us. In that, we must rejoice and live in joy. Someone said it sounds to us as though 
Pastor, you don't think that we should be seeking God for things that we clearly see in the plan of redemption and salvation and in the work of Jesus Christ. If you've gleaned that from this teaching, then you have gleaned well. I'm in fact saying the two critical things, these two critical things, it must be understood first. Seek Him. Seek Him now. Seek to serve Him. Seek to communicate with Him. Seek to develop yourself in Him. Seek to live like Him. Seek to think like Him. Seek to act like Him. Seek to learn to go and come from the throne room of God as a priest of Jesus Christ. Seek to serve Him in ministry and seek to operate in His faith. As you seek what needs to be done, to apply what you find while seeking Him. Then, when you think you have reached the outer boundary of seeking Him, then seek Him some more. Continue to push the edge of the envelope of seeking Him until you mature in Him and then grow deeper. There will be ministry opportunities that are going to be open for you if you do it. You'll come to this understanding that wherever and whenever you go, He goes. He's going with you. When you speak, he's also speaking. When you think and act, he's also thinking and acting. This is a glorious mechanism and way to live, my friends. Now along the way of seeking him and finding him and operating in him, the byproducts of life in the spirit of Christ may become a necessity. Your body, for instance, may flare up. And if it does, you're going to require healing. It will become an act now that occurs in your life. So will all the other byproducts that are included in the plan of redemption, salvation, and the works of Jesus Christ. But you'll not be living in the Spirit based upon the acts that you're requiring or how you feel about them. You'll be living in the Spirit based upon, watch it now, having sought His ways. Now that's significant because if I know His ways, I can always expect His acts to be performed. Right here is where the wheel of faith and the wheel of the modern day Western world faith process Breaks. The wagon gets broken down right here because we don't understand what I just said. Because if I know his ways, I can always expect his acts to be performed. See, we understand the use of faith to seek acts. When God's plan for us was to know and to understand his ways. Do you remember the seven spirits of God that came upon Jesus according to Acts chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, 11, verse 1 and 2? And that we saw him produce in Luke uh, 4.18? What were they? Well, they were wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, um, knowledge, reverence, and good decision making. Do you know where they came from? They came from the way God does things. 
They came from the throne room of God because they were the way God acts. He acts in wisdom. He acts in understanding. He acts in counsel. He acts in might. He acts in knowledge. He reverences and he acts in good judgment. So Jesus did not have to wonder whether acts that he laid his hand to or that he spoke to would occur. Because in him he possessed the ways of God. Now you have to remember this. Anything that Jesus did, had, or was, anything that he said about himself applies to you. Why is that? We're going to see in just a moment as Paul shows us in Colossians chapter 1. But I want you to remember, if you know his ways, if you live in the seven spirits of God, then you can expect the acts that you require to be performed. Now right here again is where the wheel gets broken because we don't understand and probably I may be one of very few preachers you've ever even heard refer to the seven spirits of God. So we've run off on this Ferris wheel of faith to seek acts when God's plan for us was to know and understand his ways. If Jesus had it, then you have it. I'll prove it to you. God designed this path of faith and this plan of faith to work the God kind of faith for you to be able to operate in based upon His ways. This was the most important thing that God gave Moses as He led him uh, uh, to lead His people out. Moses knew His ways and Israel knew His acts. That's why they were so rebellious and hard-headed and stubborn because they lived off of how they felt and what they could see. That wasn't faith. But Moses knew his ways. Psalms 103.7, he made known his ways unto Moses. Well, he also made known those same ways to Jesus. He did that through the seven spirits of God. Jesus brought the seven spirits of God into play whenever he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he began to do acts that reflected the ways of God. In Jesus Christ, God was again making known his ways. Israel and the church only saw it in the acts. Paul did not see it that way. Because he realized that the great mystery that the church has never understood. And this was the mystery that would be revealed, which would be the ways of the Father and the ways of the Son. But we desired to remain attached to his acts. The predominant reason is we simply never understood what, if anything, was taught concerning Christ in you, from him and in him. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Even the mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, but that mystery is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So whatever was in Christ Jesus is in you. Whatever was said about Jesus is said about you. Whatever Jesus said about himself 
is said about you. Why? Because Christ, the anointed one, is in you. It was through this means that we would have access to both, but most importantly, the way God does things. And from that, the acts of God would be performed. This would bring to the believer the complete riches of the glory of God. Man would walk in the things that we see God showing Moses in Exodus 33. 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst see my face, cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by thee, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses was going to see the two things, but in order for him to do so, he had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. He was going to see the hand of God. What a great revelation that must have been. And the hand of God would lay across the cleft of the rock to block his eyes. Then he was going to view his back parts from where he would see what the glory of God actually was. Thank God we don't have to live in that glory of God. We have that work of the glory of God in us. But Christ is in us. The glory of the riches of God resides in us, friend. What Moses could not see except from the backside. Moses found the ways of God, the glory of Almighty God. We have the opportunity to have Christ in us exercising the riches of this glory out of us. In Exodus 34, we read what God said to divine, define his own glory. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. God from a cloud stood with Moses and began to proclaim the Lord. And then his nature, character, and attributes. And in 34, 6, he said, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundance in goodness and truth. Look at this. He is the Lord. He's the Lord God. He's merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, and abundant in truth. All of that lives in you, my friend. The riches of this glory are the ways of God, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and by no means to clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children upon the children until the third and fourth generation. He keeps that plan for mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. He holds uh, those who are guilty of ignoring his glory accountable. The sins of the guilty are passed through generations because the generations followed after the guilty actions of their fathers. In this interaction, we see the ways of God. 
We see how he deals with man from his perspective as both Lord and God, Lord God. We see the qualities that allow him to interact with man and be tender to their need for his mercy and graciousness. This is extremely revealing because it does not show him acting out to people. It shows the ways of which he deals with people. The result is from these ways come actions and the actions come from the expressions of his ways. Look at Colossians 1.27 to whom God would make, 26, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, this is verse 27, Christ in you the hope of glory. The riches of this glory, the ways of God, live in you. So when we identify with that glory of the riches of the mystery, what exactly is that? It's the glory of his ways. They're provided to us in Christ Jesus as he lives in you. He is the transmission of the ways of the glory of God that's been placed in him and subsequently in you because you believe. He possesses all the glory of the Father. So as he indwells you, you become indwelled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That was to be the focus of the understanding that Paul was presenting in his scripture. The ways of God will be in you. As you reconcile yourself to that knowledge, you will produce the riches of his glory. Those seven wonderful things. This results in the ways in which you present Jesus Christ and not only his glory, but the glory of God to the world so that the world can see the Father and the Son. This is what Jesus operated from. We identify his acts and we gravitate to the act. We actually seek those just as Israel did, but this was not the purpose of the message Paul is sharing. He's saying that if he lives in you, then if you just would understand the glory of the riches that reside in you, you could know his ways. You can know how to think, speak, and operate. You can know his ways then and only then can you expect the function of his ways to turn into acts that resemble the acts of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'll minister your word. Open our hearts that we can see. Help us to seek you, not things. To seek your ways, to know your ways and to allow those ways to lead us into ministry that may become acts, but at all times reflect your spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, reverence, and good judgment. Bless your people, I pray, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. Well, find him as Lord. You'll find him over everything that has a name. Find him as the man in the Godhead and he will show you, guide you, and teach you into things that are to come. He'll show you the way to locate the ways of the Father, the God of the universe, because in Him are the riches of those ways. May God bless you until we speak again.